It is good to be back in the Kerperavel School, and as you know from this morning or last week, there's no air conditioning in this facility. And, you know, frankly, I loved being in the hotel this last summer because though many of you complained about how cold it was, no one was falling asleep. And uh, last week, heads were dropping like flies. So, we're running the fan this morning. If you're in the back and you can't hear, you let me know. You wave or put your hand in the air and we'll turn the volume up, but we're definitely leaving the fans on this morning, okay? Hey, and for the guys too, the men's advance for us is a big deal. It's sort of the culmination of about a year and a half worth of calling men up to be men with chests, having a Christ-informed moral center, and so this is sort of the period on the end of our sentence for this. So October 12th and 13th, I hope you'll be there. Uh, Come, whatever it takes, come the 12th and the 13th. And also, we want to practice what we preach, literally and figuratively. We did a study on the Lord's Prayer as a model for prayer just weeks ago. We'll have a prayer meeting here in the school, in the theater, next Sunday night, Andrew and Aaron. Next Sunday night, here, 6 o'clock to 7.30. If you say prayer meeting to Christians, even Christians, no faster way to draw a yawn than say there's a prayer meeting. So we're aware of this. But we've done this before, and it was a great time. It will be a structured time. We'll have that time broken up into five segments. There will be a scripture meditation related to each segment of the Lord's Prayer. And then we will give praise and prayer in each of those segments for about ten minutes. The hour and a half flies by. It's not a boring time twiddling your thumbs, wondering if someone's going to pray. So next Sunday night, 6 to 7.30 in the theater, join us for that time of prayer. And let's pray now, speaking of that. Father, we love your word and it is truth and life to us. And we ask that you'd make it real to our hearts, Lord, for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes we're just dull or blind to the truth and we need your Spirit to make it real to us and we ask you to do that this morning. Lord, would you honor yourself? Would you help us to see Jesus Christ, your Son, more clearly? Might we love Him a little bit more this morning because of our time in your Word? In His name, amen. I had occasion a few moments a couple weeks ago, you know when the weather suddenly turned nice, we just had some days that were so exceptional, they were cool, the breezes were cool and nice right after the the heat of this really hot summer. And sitting on my patio, it's really comfortable out, the breeze is blowing, the sunlight's filtering through the leaves on my neighbor's tree, kind of that golden green color, and I'm feeling pretty satisfied with life in that moment. But because we're going through a study in 2 Thessalonians and it's about heaven and hell and the future, I sort of get this pang because I I recognize and I tell the Lord that sometimes the thought of heaven sounds like a punishment and not a reward. That God would disrupt my life, especially in good times here on the earth, and call me to heaven or that my life here would be over and that heaven is a reward, sometimes it doesn't feel that way to me. And I bet that's true of all of us. In fact, I know it's true of most of us because I've had conversations with many. So you know, sometimes it goes like this, Lord, come whenever you want, but just let me get married first. 
Or, Lord, yes, I really look forward to seeing you face to face, but I really want to see those grandchildren first. You know, because there's elements of life on this earth that are so good, and God means them to be, and he means us to feel blessed in them. But sometimes they sort of take over our minds and our imagination of what the future with Christ might be and why it might be better than life, good as it is sometimes for us here on the earth. So my hope this morning is that we can see some of the things, just a few, that are attendant to our future with Christ so that the thought of living a life in view of seeing Jesus face to face is a little bit more real, and so that the thought or the hope of heaven is like a dream that we want to be realized instead of something that we hope is delayed until something better happens. You know, sometimes life here feels like a pair of old worn jeans or a favorite recliner and it feels very comfortable. But God has better things for us to come and he wants us to be able to live in light of that. We're back in 2 Thessalonians 1 this morning. And it does touch on these themes about the future. Paul very directly talking about Christ coming. We spent a couple of weeks in this first chapter just referencing the topic of judgment. That when God judges a thing or a person, whether it's negatively or positively, negative judgment, positive in rewards, he always gets it right. He's perfect in his judgment. That was one week. Last week we looked at the very specific issue of judgment in the negative, the second death and the lake of fire from chapter 1. This morning we're pretty much going to use chapter 1 as a springboard. We'll reference a couple of verses there. But I want to focus specifically on the thought of rewards and a little bit of, about what it will mean to see Jesus and live with him in the future so that our hearts are drawn towards Christ in the way God and our Savior means them to be. We are again, in the time we have this morning, and I'll try and be real courteous to you on how much time I take, um, this is big picture stuff. If you were in the adult Sunday school this morning, I have no charts. And, and uh, Bill is taking on the Herculean task of going through Revelation and the prophetic scriptures with some specificity. I'm not doing anything like that this morning. We're hitting softballs today. Big picture, okay? Not, not the minute details, which can be dizzying. We won't talk about the Bema Seat of Christ this morning, which has to do with judgments, but we're just going to talk big picture very generally. So if you've got a study sheet or if you've got your Bible, we'll start in 2 Thessalonians 1. I'm just going to reference a couple of verses here and we'll go from there. 2 Thessalonians 1 at verse 7, Paul said that Jesus' presence with us would mean reward with rest to you who are afflicted along with us. That one of the things Christ would bring with him, attendant on our presence with him, would be rest. He goes to verse 10 and says, these things would occur in that day when he, Jesus, comes to be glorified by his saints and to be admired by all those who have believed, because our testimony among you was believed. 
So what do the king's rewards look like? When God judges righteously in the arena of blessing those who believe in him and those who serve him in their time on the earth, what do those righteous rewards look like? The first one he mentions in our text this morning is one that would not come to my mind if God said, Mike, you know, what kind of reward would you like for the future? What would motivate you? Because from verse 7, the first one he says is, to reward with rest you who are afflicted. To reward with rest you who are afflicted. Now, rest just means to stop working, to cease. And if you say, Mike, you know, this is your motivation towards heaven and Jesus, he's going to give you a little bit of rest. You know, I might feel like I'm, I'm not that tired. You know, is this the best you've got? I'm thinking of something a little more motivating than rest. But if we remember the audience Paul is addressing, rest, not the cessation of work so much, but the end of suffering, it takes on a whole new meaning. You know, if we're comfortable in life and God says, hey, I'm going to give you a break, we might say, well, I feel like I'm taking a break. But if our experience in life is the kind of persecution the early church went through, the thought of rest from what's going on in my life now, it has a totally different effect. So if we were like the Thessalonians, being hunted down like wild animals, you remember we talked about the Greek term for their affliction, it was to be hunted down. If we were being crushed daily by oppression, if our family and friends were being arrested and imprisoned, if our properties were being seized, if we felt like life itself was being squeezed out of us, and the Lord says to us, guys, you're suffering, it won't last forever, and I'm going to give you rest, I'm going to give you an end to this oppression and suffering, I'd love to hear that. There's an end. The difficulties you have now, they don't last forever. And one of the things I'll bless you with, and I'll bless my own with when I return to the earth, is I'm going to give you an end to all that suffering and persecution. Now, there are places in the world today where this promise would still ring as true as it did to the Thessalonians. You know, in the West, we endure very, very little suffering. You know, if someone raises an eyebrow at us like, are you kidding when you talk about being a Christian or the gospel? That's not persecution. That's not suffering for Christ's name. It doesn't really rack up there high enough. But for many Christians in the world today, this promise would still have the same effect it did for the first audience. Jesus coming and one of his, his rewards is simply the end of that crushing oppression and persecution that many who have followed Jesus through the ages have experienced. So, Jesus is going to bring to his own a, an end to suffering, exterior forces crushing us. There's also another kind of freedom or rest that we'll gain when we see Jesus and life on this earth for us is over, and it's a rest from the enemy within. You don't have to think of this as a reward, but it's a benefit of being with Jesus. Paul says this in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Now, Paul suffered a lot, for sure, in all kinds of ways. And generally, when people read this verse, they're thinking of suffering as a big canopy encompassing all kinds of suffering. 
But in its context, the suffering Paul's talking about has to do with the suffering he talks about in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And it's the fact that for a Christian, we not only have potentially suffering and oppression from outside forces, we also have suffering from within, the enemy within. Because as Paul makes clear, when we are born again and take on a new spiritual life, We now have an old sinful nature tied to this body. But now we have a new nature created after Christ's own image in his likeness that can't sin. And that new nature is inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So you have, as it were, the clean and the unclean taking the same place, the same life in the same body. And there's a warfare related to that. Romans 7 specifically talks about. So does Galatians 5, I think it's at verse 17, where Paul there says similar language, the spirit lusts or wages war against the flesh and vice versa. So that for Christians, there's an internal war that all of us experience if we're in this game at all. Because our old sinful nature can't do anything except sin. And that's all it wants to do. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It could be religious posturing and hypocrisy or it could be the most vile, lustful, whatever. But it's all the same. It all comes from the same source. So for the Christian, there's an internal warfare that will end when we see Christ face to face. When we lose this flesh and blood body, at whatever event that takes place, at our death, at the rapture, we're going to gain a freedom, not just from exterior strife and persecution, but from the war within. And if we're honest, we should know that there's enough sin in us, there's enough temptations, that doesn't the thought of an end, for me, the thought of end of temptation, you know, all the patterns that are unique to each one of us, that'll be over. Guys, we'll never be tempted to sin again. We'll never sin again. We'll be free from the enemy within when we see Jesus Christ. That'll be a great, great rest. That's part of seeing him face to face. The last thing about rest, let me say, is rest does not mean for us in the eternal future. It does not mean no work. You know, if we say as a definition rest means the end of work, we're not saying for Christians that eternity means we sort of follow the caricature that we're rosy-cheeked, rosy-cheeked, cherubic little angels floating on clouds. I mean, if you're a guy especially, does that sound boring and wimpy or what? It would have no appeal whatsoever. No. We're going to have responsibilities in the new heaven and new earth. We're going to be working with King Jesus, members of his body, emissaries, his ambassadors in the new heaven and new earth. We don't know what all this will look like. But guys, we'll have responsibilities and work. You remember in the garden before the fall, Adam and Eve had work to do. They tended the garden. They kept God's good creation. There was no curse. There was no futility attached to their work. Well, when we see Christ face to face, when we're part of His eternal kingdom, when that period begins, we'll still be working. Part of the the reward for faithfulness to Jesus Christ on the earth now is more work and responsibilities in the future. So you read the Synoptic Gospels or you read Daniel 12, You know, you've been faithful with a little thing. You've ruled a few cities. Well, I'm going to give you several more. You've been faithful with this much money. Well, I'm going to give you more. 
So we need to understand heaven will not be that we're not involved. It'll be productive, and we'll love what we're doing. It won't be no work. It will be work that's rewarding, that's perfect, and it will have none of the futility attached to it that anything we work at on the earth today has. So one of the rewards King Jesus brings with him and gives us is rest, whether it's from the exterior forces of persecution, whether it's through the interior enemy within that we get rid of, or whether it's simply from the futility that's connected to work on this earth. That is one of his key rewards. Another kind or form of reward that the Scripture talks about for Christians is related to crowns. 1 Corinthians 9.25. Let me read this and I'll just describe the setting next. Paul says there, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. However, they do it to receive a crown that will fade away, but we a crown that will never fade away. Paul's using the Greek athletic world as his depiction here, his comparison. And in the Greek world of athletics, think of the Olympic Games for us today. They didn't have gold medals or bronze or silver hanging around their neck. They had crowns, stephanos. And stephanos, the root, we say it's crown, it's translated crown today, but the root word means something that was twined together. So for the Greeks, for the people Paul was speaking to here, they knew that this was a laurel or a pine or sometimes an olive circlet, little small twigs, leaves, uh, limb ends that were twined together into a circlet and placed on the head of the people who won their competition in the games. So Paul looks at his life and he says, I see my life like an athlete competing in the Greek games. For us, we'd say, I'm an Olympian. And so that looms so large in my mind that everything in my life is geared to performing in my race and winning. And so every aspect of my life I bring under the discipline that has to do with the fact that I'm in a competition, I'm in a race. And Paul says, I'm doing all these things because I intend to win. In the race of life, in serving Jesus Christ on the earth, Paul says, I intend to win. And I'm laboring for a crown. I long for the day when I see Jesus face to face, and he says to me, Paul, well done. And he puts the stephanos, the circlet, the crown on my head. But Paul says there's a difference between what Christ rewards us for And what the Greeks got, they just got a little limb in a circle on their head. And so if I set that on my shelf or my mantle, display it proudly, what happens to that thing over time? It gets crispy and crunchy and falls apart and it's gone. Paul says the kind of crown he's working for and he enjoins on us is a crown that never fades. It never loses its luster. It's always as glorious and new as the time Jesus awards it to us. A crown that doesn't perish, doesn't fade away. A crown, Paul says, I'm working for a crown. And by the way, this is not self-serving in a carnal way. God commends to his own to live life in a way that he is free to reward us. You'll hear some Christians say, I should just serve Christ out of love. And I say, amen, yes. 
But the Scriptures tell me to motivate myself in part because of the idea of future rewards in heaven. And I think it goes a little bit like this. God our Father and Jesus our Savior, they're good all the time, really good. And they love us. And out of their nature and their disposition of love towards us, they want to reward us, just like I want to bless my children. And so if I tell my child, do a good job and I'll pay you this at the end of the day, or I'll give you this, or we'll celebrate a treat together, I don't say my children are selfish when they do what I ask, and I bless them for it. God wants to bless us, and rewards are not meant to be some self-serving thing that we say, oh, no, 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 I don't need that. Paul says, no, I'm laboring, I'm running the race of life like I want to win. Because I want King Jesus to be able to stow on me that honor, I'm going to feel more blessed than at any other time, and Christ is honored in the doing. So this is a win-win, this is not a downside. And Please don't think, you'll hear well-meaning Christians say this, Rewards are commended to Christians as a motivation for faithfulness now. So Paul says a a crown that doesn't lose its luster. 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. This is Paul's last letter. This is his swan song. It's the last thing he writes. So, you know, our last words to anyone are important. And one of the things he says at 4 verse 8 is, to Timothy his friend, There is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. You remember in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I'm running the race of life. In 2 Timothy, he says, I am finishing my race. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. My my finish line is right in front of me. We know this is right at the end of his life. And he says, I've done it. And he says, I'm confident of this, that Jesus has set aside for me the crown of righteousness. And Paul says, not just to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. And I think the thought we're meant to take away there is, the thought of Jesus appearing is what always loomed large for Paul. The thought of seeing Christ face to face and being with him. And so he ordered his life after that. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 9 and 10, Paul says about this same group of Christians, he says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who saves us from the wrath to come. The Thessalonians had stopped in their life, heard the gospel, and it says they turned to God from idols to wait for His Son from heaven. That's Paul's thought here. Paul's life was guided by the motivation of seeing Jesus. That time when Jesus might return, Paul would see him face to face. That was the guiding star of his life. James 1.12, and guys, I'm going to hurry through a little bit this morning. I'm going to rush through to cover as much here as I can, so forgive me as I sort of push through fast. James 1.12, the crown of life. And it's interesting, this isn't just Pauline theology. James brings up the same thing. Peter brings up the same thing as well. James 1.12, a man who endures trials is blessed because when he passes the test, he will receive a crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Again, the thought is here, Lord, I love you. I'm going through a difficult time in my life, and I want to remain faithful to you because I love you. I don't want to break down in this challenge or this suffering that's going on now. I want to respond to life in a way that you're free to bless 
James talks about the crown of life. 1 Peter 5, verse 4, Peter is writing in this chapter to his what he calls his fellow elders. Those men who are charged with the responsibility to lead and serve and guide and feed the flock, the church. And he says to them, when the chief shepherd appears, Jesus is the chief shepherd. And anyone who's called to leadership in the church, we are Jesus' under-shepherds. We're not the key one. We're the the sub-rulers, the sub-leaders, the sub-servants. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He says, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, You know, if you've served in leadership in the church, you know that for whatever degree of esteem you might think you get, there's a whole other side of life. And for every pat on the back, there's several, why did you do that? And why did you say that? And why didn't you do this? And I'm not happy with that. And it can be, like parenting, it can be a thankless job. And so Peter says to other elders, those who had the responsibility to teach and lead in the church, he says, guys, hang in there. Be faithful as Jesus' sub-shepherd in his church And He will reward you the unfading crown of glory. Jesus will honor you for serving, whether it felt good in the moment or not, because you were serving His people and therefore serving Him. Unfading crown of glory. And the last one we'll cover here, Revelation 2.10. To the suffering church at Smyrna, Jesus promised the crown of life for those who suffered martyrdom. Martyr means witness. To those who witnessed with their life, when they were dying for Jesus' cause. So King Jesus promises crowns to those who faithfully wait for Him, are faithful in the face of persecution, faithful in serving Jesus' church, and faithful to the point of death. Now, like the first reward of rest, if you said to me, Mike, uh, I'm going to give you a crown, and that's your heavenly reward. Uh, The thought of the crown... Sorry, it doesn't do a lot for me again. You know, I rarely wear hats because they bother my brow, bother the skin. Now, I'm thinking a laurel a laurel wreath on my brow, I mean, it's going to be poking me, right? And that doesn't sound like much. And if I've got a crown on my head, if I bend over, will it fall off? Or if I'm zooming through the heavens flying, will I have to hold it on with two hands? It sounds like an encumbrance to me. That's, that's just me, maybe. But, you know, my chief concern is, will my crown match the rest of my outfit? Will it work? You know, that's my chief concern. Will that crown work? Work for me. I'm being facetious, obviously. Uh, To the point that people disagree. Are these real crowns? You know, when we get to heaven, does Jesus really put a crown? Is it a physical, weighty crown on my head, on your head? Is that what it'll be? Some people say yes, some people say no, it's symbolic, it's symbolic. I, I tend to want to read Scripture literally in the sense that it means what the words say, unless there's a pretty good, clear reason not to. So my own suspicion is there will be some physical, real crown that you can see. But that aside for just a minute, whether it's real or not, these crowns, they represent honor and glory and blessing. And these are going to be highly desirable. 
you're going to want these crowns when you see them awarded in heaven. You're not going to say, that's no big deal. For King Jesus to reward us with honor, calling out your name, and saying, here's my servant so-and-so, and this is what they did, and I want to honor them before the hosts of heaven and recognize them, and I'm going to put on them glory and honor and blessing, and it'll never end. That you'll receive some, some weight of glory and honor that will be with you forever. Guys, there's nothing on earth that we give up or we lose for Christ's sake that won't be rewarded in heaven. And whatever that reward is, whether it matches our outfit or not, whatever that is, physical, literal, or symbolic, representing honor and blessing, you will be delighted to get it. You will not feel ripped off or cheated. These crowns represent Christ's honor on us that lasts forever, and it'll be worth it for sure. The king will reward with crowns, giving honor and glory in his eternal kingdom to all those who've competed and won in the race of life. I'm going to real quickly go through a list out of uh, Revelation 2 and 3. And again, apologies for the brevity, but just to sort of cover bases. Jesus uh, had seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor written through John the Apostle. And in each letter, he commends usually each church, one church he can't commend. He reproves each church, one church doesn't need reproof. But in all of them, he gives a promise to them to stick it out, to be faithful where they're at, that there's a promise or more than one promise for them for their faithfulness. So, for instance, to the church at Ephesus, John said you would have the right to eat from the tree of life. You remember the tree of life was cut off from our ancestors in the Garden of Eden? But you see it in the New Jerusalem. In fact, these trees will line the river of life coming from the throne of God. And, and Jesus tells his own, you know what? That fruit that was forbidden to your parent, it's going to be free and accessible. You can enjoy that anytime you want in the New Jerusalem. The church at suffering Smyrna, Jesus says to them, in the future you will never be harmed by the second death. Smyrna, the word comes from myrrh. It's related to the incense used in bodies and their death. And Jesus says to them, guys, you'll never worry about dying again. No second death for you. Verse 17 in chapter 2, to the Pergamum, hidden, hidden man of the food of heaven. Uh, you're going to be feasting in heaven on heaven's food, dining in the courts of heaven. And also that you'd be given a gem inscribed with a secret name. You know, if someone gets married and they give their fiancé a ring and it's inscribed on the inside, and only the fiancé knows what it says in there. Well, Jesus will give us a stone or a gem with our own name, pet name, that only we and He know. It'll be this intimate sense of my Savior knows me and I know Him in a way no one else does. It's just unique to us too. To Thyatira, they will rule over the nations. They'll also receive Jesus, the morning star. Sardis, uh, God will acknowledge them by name. Jesus will in the presence of God the Father and the angels. Guys, I don't know if this means anything to you. I was at a pep rally when I was in high school a long, long time ago, and it was before a big game, and uh, this little gymnasium was packed. Standing room only, elbow to elbow, and the basketball teams were being introduced. And so, as each member of the team was introduced, they'd walk forward and join the rest of the team, and of course, every person was individually applauded and clapped for. 
this was so loud that when I walked out, I felt like I was having an out-of-the-body experience. I, I couldn't feel my own body from the reverberation. Well, take that and magnify it and you're standing in the middle of the hosts of heaven, and Jesus calls your name, guys, there will, there will be nothing like it, that Jesus acknowledges us personally and says, you're mine. Well done. You will not want to miss it. Nothing we give up would make up for that. The courts of heaven, the hosts of heaven, and King Jesus says, this one's mine. Well done. That's what we're headed for. Sorry. Philadelphia. Sardis? Yeah. Philadelphia. A place in God's presence you'll never lose. And Laodicea, lukewarm Laodicea, Jesus makes a promise. He says, you'll sit on my throne and rule the new heavens and the new earth with me. Guys, you've been lukewarm, but you know what? If you'll be faithful, and I think, guys, we live in a church age a lot like Laodicea. We think external wealth matters. And Jesus says it doesn't. You're blind, guys. You don't have anything that matters to me. He's knocking at the door in this one, you know. I'm on the outside looking in. Open up and I'll come in and we'll, we'll fellowship with each other face to face. And you'll sit on my throne and you'll rule the new heavens and new earth with me. That's a reward for those who are faithful. The last reward I'll mention here is uh, maybe not self-evident, but in verse 10... Uh, Jesus says he would be glorified by his saints and admired by all those who have believed. Admired by all those who have believed. There is a reward, in fact I think this is the most important one, I don't think any of the others match this one, that will simply be seeing and knowing Jesus personally and face to face. Seeing Jesus and knowing him personally face to face. John 17, 3, when Jesus is praying that night before his crucifixion to the Father, he says, this is eternal life. This is the, qualitatively, this is the life that matters. That they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Life, Jesus says qualitatively, is the knowledge of God. For us to know God, that's life. In heaven, we're going to see Jesus face to face and we'll know him in ways we cannot know him here the separation that we now experience. Now, there's a school of thought along this level that suggests that one of the rewards, or the key reward, for faithfulness on earth in heaven will be a heightened ability to know and appreciate the Lord Himself. A heightened ability to know Him and therefore to enjoy Him and appreciate Him. If you show me a complex mathematical equation, I might be able to say, I see these symbols, I recognize this, but I don't know what this says or means. No idea. If you show that same equation to someone who's a mathematician or scientist, they could say, wow, this is great. Einstein's theory of relativity, for instance. Wow. Simplicity, beauty, it's great. They could see it and appreciate it in a way I can't because they know something. They have an, an ability to perceive things I don't. If you read to me French poetry, I might say something like, wow, sounds nice, flows, but I would have no idea what it meant. But someone who knows French would. Well, there's a thought, and I do give this credence, that one of the rewards 
for faithfulness on this earth to Jesus is the heightened ability to know and therefore enjoy Him. That if I spend my life faithfully pursuing Christ and I'm in the pages of the Scriptures, I'm getting to know Him better here, I'm being faithful in the things He's given me here and now, part of that reward will be that I will know Him well. I will know Him better than I might otherwise. And that is the greatest reward in heaven. You know, in Hebrews... uh, The author makes a distinction between the builder of a house and a house. We look at the house, we say, wow, great house. But the point there is, no, the builder, that's the one. Because he can build that house and that house and that house. Well, that's the thought here. We can look at what Jesus has done and we say, wow, that's cool. But Jesus is the one. To be able to know him will be to enjoy him. And so we want to be able to know and enjoy him as much as possible because that will be the greatest thing in heaven. Nothing will be better than knowing more of the Lord Himself. I've had people ask me many times over the years this question. uh, Why doesn't the Bible say more specifically about what heaven will be like? You know, when I read Revelation, it, it does give me sort of a portrait of the New Jerusalem, and I get that, but why isn't it more specific about what the new heaven and earth will be like, and what life there will be like. Why is so much of that unanswered in the Scriptures? And I think there's several reasons, but the chief one, I think, is this. In eternity, it will not be as important about where we are or what we are doing as to with whom we are spending it, in whose presence we are spending that eternity. Um, I've heard lots of disaster stories about honeymoons. Disaster stories. You know where the the groom has this great plan and they're going to Hawaii or they're taking a great trip and I can't tell you how many of these I've heard. They're disasters. Somebody's always sunburned. Somebody's always sick to their stomach. Somebody's going to the hospital. They're cutting it short. It's disaster. And I'm thinking, you know, why bother with Hawaii? Because really all, all you want to do is be together. You know, go to Kansas City. Uh, whatever. You know, don't, don't worry. Just for the bride and groom, all that really matters is being alone. It's being together, right? So why bother with all that? And you know, your first house, your address isn't as important as that your family is now in your new home. And I think that's why God doesn't tell us much about what eternity will be like. Because that's not the main thing. The main thing is we'll be with Christ. That's the thing. We'll be with our beloved, our beloved will be with us, and we'll say, that's enough. That's what matters. That's enough. King David, you know, he was the king of kings in Israel in his day, and all the kings that follow him, they're compared to him. Right? Were they like David? Did they measure up to David? And so David in his life, he's got wealth, he's got the throne, he's got stature, he's got many beautiful wives. He's got lots of children, lots of wealth. Everything this world has to offer, David has it. But when he sits down in God's presence, excuse me, in Psalm 27, and he says, uh, Lord, you know, I've been thinking about there's only one thing that I really want. There's just one. You know that I can be in your house that I can be where you are, that I can think about you and your things, 
that I can just be where you are. David says, that's all I really care about at the end of the day. That I may behold the beauty of the Lord and I'll meditate there in His temple where God is. He says, that's all that matters. I've got all this stuff. He says, yeah, there's really just one thing that I want. David's heart, that should be our heart. That's what we want. And I love in Revelation 22, verse 4, this is a depiction of the new Jerusalem. And he's sort of identifying and describing one thing and another. And in the midst of that description, he just says this, they will see his face. You'll see Jesus face to face. And that'll be enough. You'll, ah, I'm here. It doesn't get any better than this. Well, who gets those rewards? Verse 7 in 2 Thessalonians 1 says, You who are afflicted along with us, you've been persecuted for Jesus' name. And verse 10, all those who have believed. On one hand, guys, there are rewards, there are awards, there are benefits for every Christian, simply those who are characterized by faith in Christ. Everything else aside, forget everything else for just a moment, there are awards, there are rewards, there are benefits for our faith in eternity just because we believe in the Lord Jesus and we belong to Him. And because we're in His body and we're saved by Him, there's just a ton of good stuff we get. And in fact, some argue, and I tend to give it credence, the promises Jesus gives in the seven letters to the churches, they're all dependent primarily on faith, just that faith is present, because they are promises given to Christians generally otherwise not listed as rewards. John says, our faith overcomes this world. If you're a Christian, you are by definition an overcomer. You have faith in Christ, you're an overcomer, you're a victor. You've won the race of life because you belong to Christ through faith. And you'll enjoy the, the rewards of heaven. On one hand, that applies to all of us equally. On the flip side, there are rewards to be won. Through faithfulness. In those arenas, Christ has given us here and now. So on that level, we want to be like Paul. <clears throat> and we want to say, I'm living my life with purpose. I'm not boxing the air as if it doesn't matter. I'm taking my thoughts and my mind and my body and my time and my calendar and my finances, I'm taking them captive to the obedience of Christ. Because that's what matters. And I want King Jesus to be able to say, well done, Mike, or Susie, or Bob. Well done. You were faithful in that arena I gave you. And specifically, those will be the rewards that Jesus gives related to faithfulness in the time and the place He's given us. And related to this, the issue is always faithfulness. You know, God does not give us equal opportunity to win rewards. He does not. And He doesn't apologize about that. I bet I don't earn a martyr's crown. How many think here they're going to be uh, murdered for Christ? I, I doubt if we in this room do. Possibility. I don't think I'm going to get that crown. I don't. Most of us here won't. The issue will be, are we faithful where God has us? So if that's diapers and taking the trash out or doing the laundry, guys, that's the faithfulness Christ will reward in heaven. And if that faithfulness is proclaiming the gospel of Christ in foreign lands, that's the faithfulness Christ will reward. It's in the sphere He's given us. Are we being faithful? That's always the issue in the Scriptures. The Gospels, the Epistles, Revelation, it doesn't matter. Are we being faithful where we are? 
Uh, let me wind down with this. Uh, Philippians 1, when Paul was writing to the Philippian church, he, he said, I, I was in the situation where I felt like I could choose between dying and going to heaven or continuing on to live on this earth. And he said sort of, as I'm weighing the options, I came to this conclusion. To die, to depart and go be with Christ, that's a far better thing. No question. But there's service that needs to occur, and so I think God's going to leave me here, and, and, and I'll still be here to serve you guys. To die, to depart, and be with Christ is far better than anything on the earth. Hopefully all of us feel that God has put us in a place of blessing. I love my wife. We have a great marriage. We have a great time together. And I love my life on earth in part because I love my wife, and I love my family and my friends, and I feel like we're really blessed in all that. And I love serving this church. This is all I've ever wanted to do, is just serve in a local church. But none of those things should occlude what Paul's conclusion was. To depart and be with Christ, guys, no matter how good life here is, is far better. If our life on this earth is primarily suffering and oppression and difficulty, the thought of seeing Christ in reward says, hey... Rejoice because you're going to get rest. This will end. And Jesus will reward your faithfulness. And if our life on this earth has to do more with seasons of peace and joy and blessing, we can rejoice too, no less. Because these joys here, they're just intimations. They're just hints. They're whispers at the joy you and I will experience with Christ in heaven. We have not begun to know or to appreciate the blessings God has in store for us. Jesus, some of the last words in the Bible and almost Jesus' last words are this, Look, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to repay each person according to what he has done. Guys, to live life in view of seeing Jesus face to face, whatever our eschatology is, whenever the rapture occurs, all of that aside, whatever it is, living for Christ now will engender rewards that can only be hinted at in the Scriptures. And that we will just feel like it's the most lavish thing we could never have imagined. But it will be worth it to live our life here in view of seeing Jesus. There will be no regrets in heaven when he can say to us, Well done, let me honor you now. Lord Jesus, thanks for the suffering you endured on our behalf. Thanks for our, uh, taking our sin upon yourself and rising from the dead and including us in that death and resurrection such that we have a new life, a new hope, and a new future. Lord, thanks for your Spirit that empowers us to understand the truth and to respond to your leading. And Lord Jesus, would you honor yourself more fully by enabling us to live faithful lives for you here and now. And Lord, would you help us to be like those first century Christians and like Paul who live their lives in view of seeing you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.